Welcome to the third episode in our series on faithful leadership. We're bringing you in-depth conversations to help you ponder what it means to be a faithful and wise leader. In today's episode, psychologist and author Diane Langberg will help us think about how we can deal with power. She discusses the purposes, dynamics, systems, and proper place of power. And she warns us of power's ability to deform and distort, reminding us that our responses to those who are weaker than us expose our true character. The word system means together stand. So when we think about a system of any kind, whether it's government or some kind of organization or the church, which is a system, it's people standing together, usually for a particular goal or purpose or whatever. And so what the people want to do is maintain the system because of what it gives them. So if you come along and say, the person who's running that system is a wolf, and is devouring the sheep, nobody wants to hear that. Because if that's the case, then the thing that they believe in that keeps them safe isn't safe. That's terrifying. This is an edited version of our online conversation from July of 2021. You can find the full video of that conversation with transcript on our website at ttf.org. And check out the show notes of this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. Today, the question that we're going to grapple with is both sobering and of extraordinary importance. How do we understand the purposes and forms of power, recognize its potential for both redemption and for abuse, and respond to abuse in a way that encourages hope and healing? These are questions that are often avoided in polite company, but have an increasing urgency to them. A growing body of research indicates that abuse and trauma are almost shockingly pervasive, even in the two places that ought to be the safest, home and the church. But in the words of our guest today, what happens in families also happens in the family of God. Moreover, Many churches or Christian institutions have responded to reports of abuse with denial, dismissal, or even denunciation, prioritizing the protection of the organization or the leader over the victim. The fallout has profoundly damaged a number of victims, a great number of victims, uh, but not only them, but also their families, their communities, institutions, churches, even entire denominations. So how do we, in the words of our guest today, come to understand power and learn how to use it wisely, to bless and not to harm, and like our Lord, to lay it aside to cross divides and reach out with love to those who are vulnerable, whose power is little or trampled, bestowing benedictions as we go. It is a challenging and a desperately needed summons. And it is hard to imagine someone who can make it with more real-world experience, expertise, or eloquence than our guest today, Dr. Diane Lingberg. Diane is a psychologist and a counselor globally recognized for her nearly 50 years of clinical work with trauma victims. She directs her own counseling practice in Pennsylvania, is a board member of GRACE, which stands for Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment, and co-founded the Global Trauma Recovery Institute at Mission Seminary in Philadelphia, as well as co-chairing the American Bible Society's Trauma Advisory Council. 
She has received numerous awards for her work and written several books, including Counseling Survivors of Sexual Abuse, In Our Lives First, On the Threshold of Hope, and her latest book, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, which we've invited her to discuss today. Diane, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. So as we start off, I would love to hear part of your own story. You have been a pioneer in recognizing, understanding, and caring for victims of trauma and abuse, doing this for almost 50 years, which was before, you got your start before, many of the, the titles, the categories that we now use to understand abuse were even coined or recognized. So I'd be interested in hearing what got you into this work, this very difficult work, and why have you dedicated a half century of your life to it? I got into it in the early 1970s, having finished a master's degree, starting a doctorate, and I began working under a psychologist. In, during that time, there were very few women in the field. And so oftentimes when clients would come to the office, they would ask to see me at 22, so it was certainly not because I knew a great deal, but because of my gender. And so I began meeting with women and girls over time, and they would say things to me in a coded manner. For example, one woman uh, took her long hair and threw it over her face and just said, my father used to do weird things to me. I, I had no idea what that meant. It was not in my world. I'd never heard anybody talk about anything. <laughs> Uh, abuse was not a topic of conversation. And so I learned from my clients who were courageous and who began to tell me their stories little by little. I went to a supervisor who labeled what was happening hysteria and told me not to listen. Obviously, I didn't listen to him, <laughs> which probably says something about me. But I, I chose to listen to the victims I was also at that time, just because of when it was, working with Vietnam vets. I'm the daughter of an Air Force colonel, and I have a soft spot for vets. And what I began to realize was that the women in the vets had the same symptoms. And so eight years later, they came up with the diagnostic category of post-traumatic stress disorder. But during those eight years, there was no category for what either the women or the vets were experiencing. Yeah. So we're, we're talking today about redeeming power. And so it probably makes sense for us to start with at least a common understanding of what we're talking about. And I'd love at the sort of the outset for you just to sort of give us your working definitions of what power is, abuse, and vulnerability, as well as the dynamics between them. Well, power is simply the ability to influence. Um, every human being has it. And if we go back to the book of Genesis, we see as we were made in the image of God, who holds all power, you know, he gave us power and told us to rule and subdue the earth, not each other, but the earth. So it's just part of being an image bearer of God to have power. And when people think they don't have any, I remind them if they've had a child, that if that child at two or three days old wakes up at 3 a.m. screaming because he's hungry, two big adults who are exhausted jump out of bed. That's power. <laughs> and so, you know, we have it from birth. 
Vulnerability is when you can't make things happen yourself and utterly rely on others, like this infant, so that when you are in pain or need or something like that, others must come alongside and help you. Vulnerable simply means you can be wounded. So it covers all kinds of things that can happen to humans. And all human beings also have vulnerability. We have power and we are all vulnerable. One of the impetuses for abusing power is the fact that we don't like to be vulnerable. And so we look for ways, often crushing others, to feel powerful in ways that are destructive to others. Yeah. And abuse simply means to use wrongly. And so when we use another human being in any capacity, mm -hmm. uh, we have been abusive to them. So our, we can do that with words, we can do that with physical things, we can do that with emotions, we can do that with the word of God. Yeah. use people wrongly in many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the fascinating, well, there is so much, but one of the fascinating things in your book right off the bat is that you said that whenever there is abuse or misuse of power, uh, there is always deception. That deception both precedes and then protects the abuse of power. Could you kind of untangle this um this ball of deception and abuse, why does it necessarily, why does deception necessarily precede the misuse of power? Well, again, I would have to start with Genesis because our twisting of power came through deception from the enemy. Mm -hmm. We chose to believe that deception. And so what he essentially did was use God's words to call humans to do something ungodly. Mm -hmm. And we did, and we still are. And so deception is how we get used to things that we would normally not do. So for example, um, if you look at something like a pornography addiction, you know, it starts out with somebody showing you something or you're only gonna look at it once and then you're not gonna do it anymore. Or it's the things we tell ourselves to make things that are blatantly ungodly okay. And then as we practice that, the deception grows and our capacity to see it lessens. And so we actually believe ourselves. You know, if I do this, whatever, I'm not hurting anybody. When I hit my wife, it's only because she deserved it. And if she would be, you know, she would do what I asked, it wouldn't happen. And it's okay because I'm the head of the house or whatever. Those are the deceptions that permit someone to begin doing something ungodly and they support it so that it can grow and make deeper roots. And so we deceive ourselves, we deceive others, and we become convinced that what we're doing is okay when in fact it is death. You, know, you uh, along those lines, you had mentioned that often one of the first or the early stage forms of deception is labeling things inaccurately. And even just picking up on something you said earlier, where some of the early victims that you had met with were described as hysterical. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that trauma victims until, well, you mentioned 
there wasn't even the title or the category of PTSD until recently. Before that, it was shell shock or it was hysterical women. It was essentially labels that largely indicated that the victims were themselves either weak or histrionic. And I guess one question is, why did it take so long for us to come up with truer categories for trauma and abuse that weren't inherently disparaging to those who have suffered from it? Well, part of that is collective deceptions, I think. Mm -hmm. Things that we want to believe are true, that the home is the safest place there is, that church is a sanctuary. And so we have things that we want to be true and long for. And when something shines a light that suggests that it isn't true, we find a way to deny it. So it's very difficult to get right labels for things if it doesn't happen. And it's much easier to believe it's the other person's fault. I mean, we do that when we drive. You know, I speed because I'm late or I'm driving this way because of the stupid person in front of me. You know, and so we do it with ordinary things. And when things are more threatening, we're even more likely to do that. Find a way to label it, to make it not mine Mm -hmm. and to make it okay. We want it to be okay. How widespread of an issue are we talking about here? And one of the reasons I ask is, you know, it, it can be hard to get statistics that seem to have you know, widespread agreement. But one of the interesting things I saw just in the process of kind of reading your book and doing a little bit of research for this conversation is what a significant disconnect there is between say surveyed pastors in their perceptions of, of you know, how pervasive abuse is and say, you know, certainly advocacy groups or even what the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, says. So how big a problem are we we talking about? Well, one of the standard numbers is one in four women, and this is the United States, one in four women and one in six men are sexually abused before the age of 18. So when I'm speaking to groups, particularly in a church or whatever, I say, okay, now you think about your women's group. They're sitting in the pews or in a circle, and you count them off, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. That's how many in that group have been abused. And the same thing with men, one in six. And then I I think it's like one in seven marriages or so experiences domestic violence. It's sitting all over our pews. It's in our schools. It's where our children go. You know, they, they are going to school with kids who are being abused. Yeah. And is there a difference in incidents between the church and the broader culture in, in terms of the pervasiveness? I have not found one. Everything I have read, and certainly what I have seen, is that the statistics hold for churches as much as they hold for any place else. And, you know, as a Christian yourself who has spent, you know, her life in the church, to what do you attribute either the lack or the deformation of our spiritual formation that enables the church to have roughly the same incidence of abuse as the broader world? Well, I would say first that it's been there forever. I mean, that's why Ezekiel talks about wolves 
and you know there's talk about wolves among the sheep in the new testament as well so there there have been things going on that are evil in sanctuaries from way back when and part of the reason for that is that if an exploiter such as a wolf is hungry you go where people are vulnerable and aren't looking for you and people in churches aren't looking for you because everybody there is nice. And so it's, it's easier to find food in places like that. Mm -hmm. They also go to those who are little and not necessarily in size and age, though certainly that, but also in their own power and capacity to take care of themselves or fight for themselves or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we go to places where people think they're safe and then they stop looking one of the the fascinating studies that you mentioned in your book which speaks to kind of the ongoing impact of abuse and trauma is you cited a, a study that showed of the grandchildren of holocaust survivors there was a referral rate to psychologists or psychiatrists that was 300 percent higher than the general public such that essentially the trauma not just of the generation before but of two generations before in at least you know, by appearances, was, was passed down and transmitted to, yes. to multiple generations. How does that happen? How does trauma get transmitted throughout generations? That, that study was originally done in Canada, and it was quite fascinating when it first came out just to see that indication. I certainly had encountered it in my office. So I would often be working with women who were incest victims, not only of their own fathers, but of most of the men in the family and often trafficked as well by men in the family. And so when I began to ask questions, I learned that their mothers were incest victims and their grandmothers were incest victims. It was all anybody knew. Yeah. And I worked with women in those situations. Nobody ever told them that what happened to them was wrong. I was the first person to tell them. And you have to learn a whole different way of life when you begin to think like that. And it's terrifying and full of pain and everything else. But I've also had the privilege of working with incest victims who have raised unabused children. And I've told them over the years, it's like turning a massive ship. And the first turn seems so little. It's never going to make a difference in the way the ship is going. But you keep turning the ship. And your children will be facing a different way than you did. Maybe not as far as you want, but different. And they'll turn the ship. And your grandchildren won't even know what sexual abuse is. And I have seen many women go through that hard work in time and watch the generations completely shift the direction they're in. Yeah. yeah in some ways, that leads to another argument that you have made within the book that often abuse and trauma is not limited to individual bad actors, but can actually be enmeshed within communities, even systems. What does it mean for a system to be abusive? And how does one respond to an abusive system as opposed to an individual? The word system means together stand. So when we think about a system of any kind, whether it's a government or some kind of organization or the church, which is a system, it's people standing together, usually for a particular goal or purpose or whatever. And so 
what the people want to do is maintain the system because of what it gives them. So if you come along and say the person who's running that system is a wolf and is devouring the sheep, nobody wants to hear that. Because if that's the case, then the thing that they believe in that keeps them safe isn't safe. That's terrifying. And so oftentimes the system, whether it's a family again or a church or whatever, will deny and make a scapegoat of the one who tells. Because to do that is to break the system, which indeed it is, which is what Jesus' reaction was in Jerusalem with the synagogue. They were not, that, that was a corrupt system that used God's name. And he went and turned it upside down. That was his response. That's what's supposed to happen. But we protect the systems because it makes us feel safe. We're not, but we want that feeling. Are, are there particular, I mean, this might sound too pat and tidy, but are there, are there tells, you know, in part of what you have been describing is not just a wolf disguised as a sheep, but a wolf disguised as a shepherd, you know, which is, you know, is even more disorienting, but wolves who disguise themselves as shepherds, how do, how do the earnest sheep detect them? What are the, how can they see through the disguise? Well, oftentimes when people look back, they realize that this was somebody who never took criticism, weren't allowed. Mm -hmm. This was somebody you couldn't say no to, which is a form of bullying. Mm -hmm. You can't say no. And so they would see the smaller things that had been going on for years and then when they were told the bigger thing, they didn't believe it because they had covered up or ignored or said, well, that's just the way he is, or he works really hard and he's tired or whatever. And so we excuse the smaller things because we want the system to be okay because it keeps us safe or makes us feel good or whatever. And so we deny the smaller things and excuse them, which is a form of deceit that's quite contagious because the person who's doing those things is already deceiving themselves. And then when it blows up bigger, we say that can't be true. But actually the path indicated that that was coming. Yeah. You know, just to press on that for a moment, you know, one of the challenges is that there is so often, you know, the hard charging leader, the one who will not give up, the one who will not say no, who powers through, you know, who has an indomitable will, who has great charisma. You know, this is a, a type, you know, that we both within the church and outside the church as a society value and admire and often aspire to, and, you know, believe that this is in many ways what makes for a successful leader. Yes. You know, we've kind of made many of those qualities almost synonymous mm -hmm. with leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I guess one question is, you know, many of the people who are listening today, we, we, we serve on boards, we serve within organizations, we serve within institutions. Is there a way or to, to operate you know, that helps, you know, inoculate might be too strong, but fortify an organization or institution against the, the abuse or misuse of 
what can be helpful leadership traits of, of persistence and vision and passion and enthusiasm from being misused, from allowing that deception that you've spoken of to start and take hold? Well, say that seeing that in the church today and seeing it globally is probably one of the greatest griefs that I have. Because uh, what I think is, is happening is that we are measuring good leadership by external qualities and results. What should measure a good leader is likeness to Christ. He's not what you described. And he didn't live like you described. And we have lost our way. And so somebody charismatic and brilliant and articulate and the numbers go up, both money and people and all those things, we applaud as a good shepherd. But our God says the fruit of his spirit <laughs> is things totally different from that. Those are not measures of his, the presence of his spirit. And so we have followed the externals and counted on them. We have not looked at the character and we have not required that the character be Christ-like. It's supposed to, a person in leadership is supposed to carry Christ in a way that shows him to others and teaches them how to show him to others, which is not what we're doing. You know, there's not a special thing to look for to know that somebody's a good leader or a bad leader other than Christ-likeness in their character day by day over time. Not their, just their words. You know, they can use words and be totally impatient and cruel and angry and all those things. And we excuse it because of the gifts. We, com we confuse gifts with character. They're not the same. Statistically speaking, there are people who are watching today who have been victims of abuse, both by abusers and you know, perhaps, again, by the ways that they're, they have been treated within their family or their church when they went forward. And so I, I wanted to ask you to, to those people who are watching who have been abused and mistreated and then hurt further by their church's indifference or disbelief, what counsel and encouragement you would offer? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is I am so sorry that it happened, that it's wounded you, and that some people have done it and covered it up in the name of God, because they have lied about God when they've done that. I would also remind you that when we're told in the scriptures about our good and great shepherd, we are told things like he was reviled, he was rejected, he was pierced. He has borne what victims have borne. And so he knows and he listens. I would also say that the victims I have known who have taught me so much have also demonstrated incredible courage. Anybody who tries to speak the truth about these things is a courageous person. And that is a gift to the church. And it is frankly my personal opinion, having dealt with this for so long and dealt with it around the world, not just in the US, that the voice of the victims, the sheep that have been wounded, is actually a prophetic voice to the church. It's the voice that says it's not right. Things are rotten in the house of God. That's what their cries say to us. And any prophetic voice that points to truth and to God is from him. 
And we as his people in not listening to you, not sitting at your feet, not helping you be safe and find healing, have avoided and shut up the voice of our God, even as we say we continue to serve. Diane, we could talk for a long time. Just so appreciate your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a privilege to do this. I'm just going to read a small portion of a poem by George Herbert, which has meant a great deal to me in this work. Hast thou not heard that my Lord Jesus died? And let me tell you a strange story. The God of power, as he did ride, his majestic robes of glory resolved to light. And so one day he did descend, undressing all the way. Star his tire of night and rings obtained. The cloud his bow, the fire his spear, the sun his azure mantle gained. When they asked what he would wear, he smiled said as he did go, he had new clothes a-making here below. Word made flesh. Diane, thank you. It has been a privilege to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on faithful leadership. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of past events.